0: Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Egrisha Andrea, and you're listening to the Mindful of Everything podcast, which calls for revolutionary healing of self and community in order to outgrow new individualistic cultures which work to disempower communities so that we can collectively re-envision a safer, healthier, and equitable world. Today we're joined by Andrew Lang
1: healing is at the core of this that we're trying to create a radical space here that is different than what the culture desires us to create and yes that's going to rub some shoulders and yes that's gonna that's gonna poke some shadows but part of shadow work is is naming it early and still sitting in that space and with healing as the out loud statement we are here for healing and healing as the practice. We're going to commit to practices and accountability and community practices that are are here to heal us individually and collectively.
0: Andrew is an educator in the Pacific Northwest and an alumnus of the Living School for Action and Contemplation. He is the author of the forthcoming book, Unmasking the Inner Critic, Lessons for Living an Unconstricted Life. Along with blogging regularly, he facilitates workshops helping people to navigate their inner lives and explore their sense of identity and spirituality. Welcome, Andrew, to the show. It's great to have you here.
1: It's so good to be here. Thank you.
0: There is a lot to talk about today. You know, the first time we met, we were just (laughs) all places, right? Um, But before we begin, I would love to take five deep breaths if you if that's okay before we dive into the conversation
1: yeah I love that
2: if you're able to gently close your eyes notice the energy around you notice the sensations in your body or any recurring thoughts you've had today or in the last week, even month, or more than that. Give this time to yourself to slow down and reconnect to who you are and hopefully what you will become. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Deep breath in and deep breath out. Deep breath in Deep breath out. Final one. Take a deep breath in, and a deep breath out. Now, slowly, in your own time, gently open your eyes.
0: Thank you for taking those deep breaths with me.
1: Yeah, that's so good. I love starting that way. I I think grounding and rooting ourselves is, like, such a countercultural act. And so it's a, it's a beautiful way to start.
0: Yes, yes, definitely. And thank you. Thank you for that. To start off the conversation, I would love to ask you, when about or what brought you to this space of inner work, identity, spirituality, and essentially leading conversations or holding space for conversations, transparent conversations around these different worlds?
1: Yeah, I'll share a story um, that I think Really sets up how I've come to be um, in in this space. I grew up in a faith community, a progressive faith community, and um, Christian tradition. By the time I was seventeen or eighteen, um, I had pretty much exited. Um, I had chosen baseball over over spirituality, pretty clearly, and yet. There was still always a home for me. I always felt like there was this community that I knew all the adults. They were, for the most part, healthy. um, They were there if I needed them. And so at the end of 10 years, I think it had been about 10 years with this one community. I was 17, maybe I was 18. And we were, my family was leaving. We were moving. And so the entire community circled around us and said lots of wonderful things and, you know, gave us this big celebration send off. And even though I had been off playing baseball for a couple of years and hadn't really been there a ton, I was crying. I was weeping because, you know, you're it's a trauma. You're leaving this container that you knew. You're leaving these faces and you know that some of them you'll never see again. And so I'm sitting here crying. And from across the room, uh, this is at the very end where we're kind of we're starting to break apart at the very end um, from across the room this guy named Dale starts striding towards me and he was a foot or two taller than everyone else so i have this like clear image of just this very tall man coming straight at me with like passion and like <laughs> be- I and mean, he was beelining towards me and he comes up to me my tears are you know coming down my face and he puts his hand firmly on my shoulder and he says men don't cry and for a moment, just like, imagine a boy, 17 or 18, anyone, right? Anyone, 17 or 18, your sense of identity is in flux. At least mine was. And so hearing that, I couldn't, I didn't know what to do with it. But as I unpacked it over the next couple of days and weeks and months, I realized that there was something wrong. That that statement, the reason it hit so heavy and hurtful for me was that not only was it completely blowing off my emotions and what I was experiencing, my story, but also it was showing me that if this is what a lifetime, you know, Dale had been in this church for 30, 40 years. If this is what a lifetime of spirituality looked like, this ain't it. Why bother? Um, And that really, I think that question of why bother led into a question of, what would it look like to engage inner work? What would it look like to engage inner work in a way that was more intentional mm-hmm. um, and that led to you know people being emboldened to break down the systems of assumed patriarchy that were behind that statement or behind the toxic masculinity that was in that statement? Um, and I would say a step beyond that is what kind of inner work leads a person to be emboldened to start to break down what I consider you know, Theo capitalism, this mixing of divinity and purchase power and consumerism. So I think that's really what got me to where I am now is just this constant curiosity of what would it look like to do this inner work in a way that is actually radical, not centered on comfort.
0: So would you say that when you were in that liminal space, it was that point where you actually began to redefine or even just reclaim what space means to you and what space can look like.
1: Yeah, it it, it began to break down the structures and the images I had. Um, and so I I left that community uh, and I I did. I went through liminal space. I went through a little bit of a wilderness moment for me where I got to look around and have open eyes and see things in a new way in a curious way. I would say that more than anything, I got curious. I I was open. And one of the things that really connected with me and allowed me to start reclaiming some space was practices around meditation and body movement. Uh, For the first time in my life, nature walking became vital. It became lifeblood. For the first time, sitting 10, 15 minutes in silence didn't I I would be lying if it wasn't scary. It was still scary, but I also saw it as this is a pathway to better understand what's actually going on in myself and then prepare me. It was around this time. It was a couple, actually, I think it was about a year or two uh, later, but I was working on a political campaign here in Seattle. And all around me were activists that were burning out. And they knew they were burning out, right? They were just go, go, go. And I was really caught because I had because of a meditation practice, and because of uh, some community that I was now learning to be around with practices of meditation, I was feeling conflicted between my spirituality and the sense of inner light or you know whatever you want to call it, the sense of developing connection with the world. I like to call it inherent dignity and the political reality that was just very dualistic. And so I, I entered into a new domain where I it was a new level of questioning how How do you exist within the political world while still being rooted and grounded in some sort of inner truth and understanding of who you are? which is why I liked how we started today so much. Like that grounding practice, if it's not ground if you're not grounded, we all know what happens. we're We're emotionally much more likely to to explode. We're much more likely to not show up as our true selves. So I think that was all really important to my story,
0: yeah, definitely. Thank you for sharing that. After obviously experiencing all of these different things, how did you come into facilitating workshops and holding that space for other people who are perhaps in the same stage as you or were you know, struggling to come forward?
1: Yeah, um, it all started at a Thai restaurant, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, as all good things do. Um, I felt this inner um, push to uh, get together with a couple other people um, just for for meditation, essentially, I knew I couldn't do it alone. This had to be a communal practice. And all, at, once again, those structures that told me individualism, individualism, those were breaking down. So I was like, I know I need to be around people. Um, this has to be a community. And so I pulled together a couple people at a Thai restaurant, and I just asked, and I said, Hey, would you? What do you think of getting together every week for some meditation? And three people became ten people, became twenty, became twenty five. Amazing. So so amazing um and and just so i'm still so grateful and i'll share one story and I, this does tie in there's one person who showed up who um to this day i think she is one of the saints of my life her name is Molly and she's in her 80s i think she was late 70s when this when this all happened she showed up one day And she was open and she was curious, you know, what are all these people doing? We basically sat in like a dim room with candles meditating. And, you know, so she's sitting here going, this crashes all the structures I know to be spirituality. Um, She was fully institutionalized within the Christian church. And yet she showed up. And so for three years, she kept showing up. And over the course of three years, I saw Molly go from being on autopilot to Being a person who recognized, she labeled it her inner snark, this other, uh, I think it was her false self, you know, her on her bad days, she was able to notice that part of herself and then work through it and work with that part of herself. And so over three years, I saw a transformation take place um, in an elderly person. And I think that's really what proved to me that something we were doing was worth it. And that propelled me. Um, After that experience, I wanted to keep leading workshops. I wanted to keep holding space. Really with this belief and this firm commitment that like you're never too old to shift and to change. And our community needs elders. We need elders because elders mirror to us possibility. And so I think that's that's where a lot of my work stems from now, is how do you bring, how do you create some intergenerational space where that inner work is, is centered specifically for social engagement?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it leads on to the next question I wanted to ask you, and you've essentially answered it, <laughs> but um, it's true. Most of us have actually inherited this really static and impenetrable sort of blueprint of what space should look like, even what community should look like. And a lot of us struggle to outgrow that. Like you said, it is really important, but how can we take those steps to actually begin to outgrow this sort of structure or this framework of community that we've been passed down?
1: Oh, it's so good. That is the question. (laughs) Um, For me, I think it begins with curiosity. And I've said that already. And I think that's just curiosity and gratitude. I like to remind myself that you got to start with gratitude because gratitude, by laying that as your foundation, if you're thankful for something, what you're really saying is it's worth it. Mm-hmm. So if I'm thankful for myself, it's because I'm saying I'm worth it. If I'm thankful for my community enough to uh, that it, if I'm thankful for my community, it means it's worth it to go to that protest. It's worth it to stand up for the inherent dignity that is found within my community, and so I think when it comes to space i I really think starting with gratitude and naming that it is worth it to create new spaces where people can be wholly themselves. And then the curiosity kicks in. What does that look like? And I don't have any firm answers. I know that in, in my life, it looks like creating space for silence and spaciousness. Um, it means creating space and holding space together where people can touch upon the, the subtleties of their inherent dignity those moments that are soft and gentle where you go oh i love that part of myself or that that part of my story hurt me but look at how i've grown with it um, you know the subtlety of healing work on the interior landscape and i i think it means creating and holding space where people can then attach those inner insights that pop up for them in that spaciousness To what's going on in the real world. If you are connecting with your inherent dignity in a new and gentle or powerful way, however you want to say it, it becomes a lot easier to connect with the inherent dignity of another and to stand up for that inherent dignity um, amidst the systems and systemic injustices that come at us every day. And so I think when I when I process what does it mean to reclaim space and what does it mean to hold space, I think all of that has to be included. Yeah. And it's hard. It's really hard work because it's the unknown. You're inviting people and you're saying, Hey, I've got this idea. It might be a total cluster. (laughs) Like it might be a total miss come and try. (laughs) So it's hard.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, just as physical entities, we're so used to having those physical spaces, for example, religious sort of structures, so people feel safer in a space that actually has these walls. Yeah. They can claim that as theirs. But when you have something that's a bit more abstract, something that's a bit more fluid, then that security sometimes is threatened for them. And it's not just a older generation thing. Our generation can feel it too. Yeah, And at times when people feel that you can break down those walls or you can start redesigning it then they feel threatened by that
1: you know one of the things one of the things i found years ago when i first started leading workshops is i started them with a visualization and i asked people imagine yourself walking out amongst the trees it's a warm day and you're perfectly content you're walking along a path you can hear the little critters through the through the brush you can hear some birds going by there's a gentle breeze Um, It's not too hot. You're not too sweaty. You're just perfectly happy to walk. And I asked them uh, to imagine in, in that moment, what if that's what it felt like to touch upon the divine? Or what if that's what it felt like to touch upon the inherent dignity of the moment and the beauty of the moment? And almost universally, everyone has had an experience like that where they've, and often it's out in nature, where there's just this feeling of, and I'm here and I'm content. And so I think people get on a embodied level what it means to be in a space that holds you exactly as who you are. Yeah. But there's so many narratives that tell us that that that's not it. And there's so many narratives that and uh, it's really around comfort and fear. I think um, narratives that you know, no, you got to go back to the box. You got to go back to the church. You got to go back to the synagogue. You got to go back to the mosque. You got to go back to the space that we have said is the sacred space. And so what does it mean to shift people's mindsets to understand that actually the sacred, if we're serious, the sacred is everywhere, which means we can tap into it when we're out walking amongst the trees. Or when you're, for me, one of my big practices is when I was living in Seattle, I used to drive through downtown Seattle traffic every day. And so I would practice as I went you know, car to car, uh, start, stop, start, stop, I would practice where is the divinity in this moment? What is sacred about this moment? Wow. Um, <laughs> it was brutal. Most- <laughs> that is
0: dedication right there. <laughs> it, was, it, it,
1: it worked sometimes, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but I think that's, that's what it is. How do we get folks to experience something? And it's because it's not just in the brain, it's embodied. Mm-hmm. How do we help folks embody themselves in a different space so that they can experience a truth that is deeper than the narratives that they've been handed.
0: And I think a way for them to do that is through shadow work. Shadow work is something that I'd never encountered in my life until I met you. (laughs) (laughs) And just one thing that really struck me was shadow work in community. So I would love for you to explain that to the audience. What does shadow work in community mean for you? What can it look like? And how can it help us preserve that community integrity and also, like you said, connect or reconnect to that inherent dignity that we have in community, but also within ourselves as individuals?
1: Yeah. So I'll give the short version. Um, if anyone's interested, I'm leading a workshop in February around this. that will be like six, four to six weeks long, um, but I'll give the short version. So shadow, a shadow is the part of yourself you don't want others to see. Um, it's the part of yourself you definitely like you definitely don't want others to see, and you don't really want to see it yourself. You don't want to admit admit that it's there. So an example would be an inner narrative. I'm not good enough. Right. That that belief that I'm not good enough. I definitely don't want others to see it. So I'm gonna build masks mm-hmm. so that they don't see that that narrative spinning in me. And honestly, I don't really want to deal with it either because I don't know what to do with that. I don't know where it came from, or if I do. There's trauma there, and I don't want to. I don't want to touch into it. It's too harmful, hurtful. So a shadow. There are shadows at the personal level. Shadows like inner narratives. There's also shadows at the community level. You know, these are communities. So spaces you're in. It could be your school. It could be your religious or faith tradition space. um, It could be a board you sit on. It could be your workplace. You know, all these are communities, groups of people where you are uh, a part of. And these communities have shadows too. They're the things that the community doesn't want to talk about or definitely don't want people outside the community to see. And so an example I think of within the the Christian tradition is um, the absolute abuse of indigenous children in residential schools. That is a shadow of the Christian church. It is a part of the Christian church's story and history and existence and experience that they certainly don't want others to notice. From within, I can tell no one wants to really talk about it either. Part of that is they don't know, they don't know how to talk about it. And part of it is just that's what white supremacy looks like in action. It looks like a fog that, that, that stops folks, um, especially white folks from wanting to engage these parts of our stories and these harms that we've caused. And so there's shadows that are also operating at the community level. And if you can, if you think about, this is just a mind experiment, but if you think about a community that you are in, one of the ways to to find the shadows of a community is to ask in your community, what could be said that would bring up defensiveness? What would, what could be said that would bring up defensiveness? in your community, where a majority of folks would go, whoa, 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 we don't need to talk about that. And chances are, if you touch, if you hit defensiveness, chances are you're touching a shadow. So that's community shadows. And there's also the shadows at the societal level, things that as a culture, as a society, we've agreed we don't want to talk about. Um, I would say in the United States, in particular, our prison system, the, the absolute harm and hate that we spread by locking up so many people, um, that's something that as a culture, we don't really want to talk about. And you can tell because when it does get brought up by prison abolitionists, by activists, the response is utter and absolute defensiveness and antagonism. Um, so there's these three different levels of shadow work. And I, I think, especially in community, it's vital. Um, in community, it's it's vital because you can't create healthy space when there are shadows that go unaddressed. You've got to address the harm and the stories and the narratives that are going in the background that create the space before you can create anything new. That's, yeah, it's so important to me.
0: He said that, you know, if you are touching on a particular area of your community and it's causing that defensiveness to pop up, that's... Metaphorically, like another wall going up, there's a section of this space that you aren't allowed to go to, you aren't allowed to touch, particularly if you haven't stayed too long in that community. And that's usually people that are younger or people who have just entered that space. Kind of linking back to the intergenerational aspect of space that you were talking about, a lot of the time, and it's from my personal experience and from the experiences of other people who I've talked to. A lot of the time, the older generation feel as if they're being isolated when we, as the younger generation, are moving forward and redefining space or um, creating new space for each other. A lot of the time, they can feel isolated or they can feel as if they're being vilified for bringing forward certain traditions or customs that are outdated. They don't serve our time right now. Or... You know, certain things that perhaps they wanted to challenge, but they didn't have the capacity to do so, or they felt as if no one would support them. So how can we start to bridge this generational gap or this generational divide in our understanding of what space is and how space can be redesigned? And how can we start to better involve that generation, that generation that feels as if they could be the source of the problem here, you know when we're when we're talking about redesigning space, then they can't be part of that if they cling on to those certain customs.
1: you know, I'll name to to start, I, I think this is something that's coming up within me right now, is that in there's a branch of community development called asset-based community development. And one of the the tenets or the the, the frequent things that are mentioned is that the shift we want to seek and the shift we seek in society, needs to be mirrored and embodied in the spaces that we hold and the relationships that we hold, right? If we want there to be radical change in society, we need to practice radical change in these small moments, the small gatherings. And when it comes to intergenerational work, our society and culture, especially here, I'll speak to the United States, our culture tells older folks that they no longer matter, once you are retired, you are no longer productive for our society. Mm-hmm. And so creating a space where that is not the norm, where we tell older folks, you are valued here um, is 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 vital and countercultural and powerful. One of the barriers to that, I think, and this goes back to shadow work, is that especially in spaces that have been formed, you know, years and years ago. The folks who are there, we'll speak to the the older folks, the elderly folks who are in those spaces, those are homes. Those are spaces where they have found comfort. And those are spaces where they have either, to your point, um, not had the capacity to challenge or address the shadows that live there, perhaps also the shadows in themselves, or have been okay with the shadows, or have been completely unaware of the shadows. And so when younger folks come into spaces and start naming, these are the harms we see, or these are the shifts we need to make, the reason there's defensiveness is because we're touching shadows. We're touching parts of this older generation's identity and home. And we're saying we need to make some, some changes. And so there's going to be defensiveness. That's why shadow work in community is so powerful, to be able to name that. And so you can do that intergenerational work. I also think there's an aspect of growth and naming from the get-go that we're not wanting to change spiritual spaces or change sacred spaces or change space in general, just because we have different desires, right? Like we, you don't walk into a, someone's home and you're all of a sudden just like, hey, also now that I'm going to be living here as well, I'm going to change some things. Um, I think there needs to be an explanation and it's going to be slow of saying, when we set this table... What we are doing is reducing the harm that we might cause here. We are increasing the healing that can be done here. And we're centering the inherent dignity of those who are here while noticing the inherent dignity and addressing the inherent dignity of those who are not here. And here are some ideas for doing this. Here are some ways that I believe in my bones that we can do this. I think addressing in, or like in intergenerational spaces, addressing shifts and changes like that is via is I've said vital like 10 times. It's really vital. <laughs> it's really important um, because we've got a name that healing is at the core of this, that we're trying to create ra- a radical space here that is different than what the culture desires us to create. Um, and yes, that's going to rub some shoulders. And yes that's gonna um, that's gonna poke some shadows, but part of shadow work is is naming it early and still sitting in that space and 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 with healing as the out loud statement, we are here for healing, and healing as the practice we're gonna commit to practices and accountability and community practices that are are here to heal us individually and collectively <sighs> yeah. <laughs> There's, Big breath yeah. out. There is, <laughs> it's a lot. It is.
0: It is a lot. It is. But when you know that you have that community, when you know that you have each other, then it just makes, it makes that much of a difference.
1: Yeah. And it's worth it. I I, I think I, I got a name that it's worth it. I, I have so many friends who have, yeah. who have, um, and and myself i am extremely uncomfortable in a lot of community settings because i see and i experience the harm in those spaces and i recognize that this is a 10 year job like if if this space is to shift and to and to be for healing it's going to take 10 years and that i have to check in with my body and say is this mine to be here for and sometimes it's not and i think a lot of my friends exit at that point as well it's it's not for me i'm going to go do my own thing and I, I return again and again to, I think, I think Richard Rohr is the person who said this, at least that's the name that's popping around in my brain. Um, but the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. And that sticks with me. If a space that's existing, it's going to take so long to commit to healing, begin to do the radical work of creating that radical healing space somewhere else and show, show the world how we're going to do it a little different.
0: Thank you so much for everything that you've gone through here. Just to kind of end or wrap up the conversation, you have a book that's coming out on the 1st of November. It is called Unmasking the Inner Critic, Lessons for Living an Unconstricted Life. If you could give us some insight into what readers can expect, you know, the sort of themes that they can explore, and what more can they hear from Andrew?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so my book's coming out on November 1st. And it's really centered on the personal side of shadow work. And it looks at nine constrictions and I call them constrictions. They're inner narratives, but I believe firmly that the inner narratives that we have constrict us, they, they hold us in and pull us down both in body, um, but also in our emotional capacity, in our mental capacity, um, in our spiritual space. And so it goes through nine constrictions. I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable. I'm not in control. And it looks and guides readers through um, what have spiritual teachers, what have wisdom teachers, secular poets, trauma specialists, what have they said to support people in moving through those narratives, through those constrictions? And then I include body practices for each of the constrictions and lots of reflection and journaling space. It's really a workshop and a book. That was my goal. My goal was how can I create something that someone will buy and then immediately start doodling on? And writing on and and getting messy with, um, because that's what a workshop should be, and I think that's what a reading experience that can be transformative should be as well.
0: Essentially, breaking through that structure that we're so used to.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And one of I I used to be like this too, where I would get a book and I dare not write on it, dare not dog ear it, (laughs) don't do any of those things, right? (laughs) And I I I am I I am hoping to create the anti book in that sense. Um, I really want to invite people into it's your life. It's your inner life. So you choose to engage it or not. I am positing and putting forth a, a statement of possibility that I think the world would be a better place when we begin to look in inner, into our inner life um, for the outer change we we wish to seek. So that book's coming out November 1st um, and you can follow along, uh, hop on my email list at andrewglang.com. To, to learn more.
0: Thank you so much, Andrew, once again, for joining us today, for giving us your time and for sharing your inner wisdom. It's always been a pleasure talking to you. I feel like there's just so much we can explore together. And I'm so, so grateful that you've come onto this space that I've created to share that with the audience. You know, how, how can we reconnect to that inherent dignity? How can we start to reimagine these spaces that can be more fluid and dynamic? So thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. I'm, I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us in this space. If this episode resonated with you, please support Mindful of Everything by giving a rating on iTunes and sharing the podcast within your community to extend listenership to those who will also connect to the content. Become an official Mindful of Everything community member by donating at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Access Andrew's writings, offerings, and find out more about his upcoming book on andrewglang.com. Visit mindfulofeverything.com to access all other episode resources.